Okay, if you would open your copy of God's Word to Second Peter chapter two. Closing out the chapter today, I'm not gonna lie to you, I'm ready to close out chapter two. It's a it's a difficult chapter. It's heated. Peter is not happy. Even as he acknowledges the reality of the false teachers and exposes them for their godlessness, clearly he's none too happy about their presence and their influence in the church. So it's a, it's a tough chapter to deal with and uh, it makes you ready to move on to the comforts of the Lord's promises to His people, for sure. But it's good for us to spend some time here. It's necessary considering that, obviously... The, the presence and the influence of the false teachers is uh, very much amongst us today. Let's read these verses together. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's go to the Lord and ask His help. Father, to take Your Word to heart and and not say, well, it's not really that bad. Lord, we need Your help. We need Your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that we would come to Your Word with open eyes and open ears. Would You please plant it within our hearts? And I, I pray that we would not only take it to heart for our own sake, but we would take it to heart to help others. I pray that we would be helped to help others today, to give them um, the instruction or the warning, the encouragement, possibly even the rebuke that they need to, to come out of the error and out of the darkness into the truth and into the light. Lord, would You have glory from our response to what Your Word says to us today? We ask in Jesus' name, for His sake, Amen. Well, we know well by now that just as there were false prophets in the biblical era, there are going to be false teachers in our own day and continuing right through to the end of the age. And again, as Peter acknowledges the reality of the false teachers and exposes them for their godlessness, he is clearly heated. He is angry with a righteous anger for the burden that he has for the glory of God and the burden he has for the good of the people of God. 
Peter knows that the effect of these false teachers is to seduce people to hell. That's the reality of this. That's the terror of this. And this is exactly what Jesus said about the, the hypocritical religious establishment in his day. Listen to what he said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. For those who portray Jesus as being meek and mild and altogether gentle, they're not reckoning with those words, are they? It's harsh, but true and necessary. So what Jesus' concern was with the Pharisees and the scribes is Peter's concern as he exposes the false teachers that are opposing him. So throughout this chapter, let me do a quick review, very quick. He has promised the false teacher's judgment in verses 4b to 10, or rather 4 to 10b, sorry. He has exposed the godlessness of their character in 10b to 16, and now he is going to lay out the effect that they have on the vulnerable and the weak in the church. So his great concern, I think, in the end of this chapter is not so much the destruction of the false teachers, but he is greatly burdened for the destruction of those whom they entice. And I think that's enough for heartbreak. I'm not going to lie to you. The false teachers, I don't have a great burden for them. You can see how I hesitate to say that, but it's just, it's true. My heart's not broken for them. But I am deeply grieved for how many they seduce away from Christ to destruction. That's heartbreaking. And we can do something about that. We can't save them all by no means. But we can be equipped today to do something about that to help those have a defense who wouldn't have it on their own. Let's look at verse 17. Peter still is talking about the false teachers here. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. He is saying the promises that they give are pathetically empty. Imagine yourself, you got to put yourself in first century shoes here for a moment. First century Middle Eastern shoes. Say you're walking down a long dusty road. In Middle Eastern summer with that Middle Eastern sun blazing down on you, the, you know, the road's just choked with dust and you're ready for a drink. You come up to a place where you know just off the road there's a spring. And so you go off the road and you find there not the refreshing water that you have just been picturing in your mind, but more dry, cracked earth like everywhere else on the landscape. That's what Peter says the false teachers are like. Or it would be like, you know, cleaning up some destruction from a tornado and going home and going right to the the water faucet in your house and turning it on. Just you you can't you can't wait for that glass of cold water and nothing but drip, drip. 
Thanks be to the Lord and to his servant, Mr. Ray Ezel. We didn't have that problem in our community. I'm sure he didn't want me to say that, but there's more I could have said. We are thankful. It would be like a farmer, Peter says, who is uh, out looking at his withering crops. But then he looks off to the west and he sees some dark clouds forming. There's a storm coming. And he knows, he just knows that his crops are about to have relief. But the storm blows through so fast, it just drops, you know, not enough rain even to settle the dust. And it's just another disappointment. That's what Peter says about these false teachers. Their promises are pathetically empty. They promise treasures, but they just give the the littlest trinkets. They don't save, they don't satisfy. Look at what he says about them at the end of verse 17. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Do I believe, here's a cliche term, but do I believe that there is a special place in hell for the false teachers? From Peter's language, yes, absolutely. Why so terrible a fate for them? Because they are liars leading souls to hell. Now he gets into um, talking about their followers, those whom they entice. Look at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. So I'm not going to read at the end of verse 18 yet, but what we're going to do is look first at how they entice and then in the end of verse 18, who they are targeting. They speak loud boasts of folly. They have that air about them. They have this authority. They have this confidence. They're salesmen. If they were in the sales industry, they would be front of the line. Did you know, did you know Gary used to be a salesman? He sold cemetery plots for a while. He regrets, he probably regrets telling me that because I like to bring it up every now and again. It might be the first time I've ever brought it up from the pulpit though, brother. Um, these false teachers would make excellent salesmen. Gary says, I'm not like them. I wasn't a great salesman. He had to move on. <clears throat> what are they selling? What are they pushing? Sensual passions of the flesh. The word sensual, anytime that it's used in the New Testament, has to do with Sexual immorality. So he's not simply talking about money here and greed. He's talking about sexual immorality. What are they pushing and promoting? Sex without boundaries. Everyone who is of age has experienced sexual desire, sexual temptation, and sexual guilt and shame. What if you were sexually mature, scripturally immature, and the elders of your church with open Bible removed all sexual restrictions? What if you feared no consequence and were sure of God's blessing? Where would you be? Anybody who has enough time under their belt, knows where they would be. 
And there are untold numbers who are there. Now tell me that doesn't make you righteously angry and grieved for those who are being lied to and those who are being enticed by those who, from the pulpit, remove the restrictions. Now, uh, let me give a qualifier here. I have been thoroughly applying Second Peter 2 to the prosperity gospel today. And I don't know of any prosperity gospel preacher or teacher today who would specifically, explicitly take off sexual restrictions. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of any. But I would will say this. You're not hearing about sin from their pulpits. You're not hearing condemnation against sin. You're not hearing the urgency for a holy life following Christ. And so in that way, you know, the no trespassing signs might as well not even be there. And of course, going outside of the prosperity gospel camp, there are many within the church today who are explicitly taking off the restrictions, who are saying pornography and self-gratification are good. Same-sex or hetero is good. Inside marriage or outside is good. What you want, what makes you happy, what makes you, you, feel free. Look at the end of verse 18. This is how they entice. Now, who do they entice? Those barely escaping from those who live in error. What Peter means is that they have just come into the church. They have just come in seeking, wanting to hear from God, even welcoming the Word of God. But humanly speaking, I mean, you could have the picture in your mind. They're on the threshold. They're, they got one foot in and one out. They're not really sure. They're not yet safe inside. They could go either way. And somebody needs to help them. Somebody needs to take that person under their wing in love and disciple them, mentor them. You know who will do it? A false teacher will do it. Look at verse 19. We're going to come back to that, that theme in just a moment. But look at verse 19 first. They promised them freedom. Now speaking again of the false teachers. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They are, the false teachers are slaves who are chained to a ruthless master. Promising you and me freedom if we will just join them. But spiritually, that's exactly what they are. Slaves chained to the devil with a a stronger bondage holding them captive than anything in this world. And they abound. False teachers abound. They're rampant and they're popular. I don't think that they're in every church. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't even think that they're in every church that we would choose for doctrinal reasons not to partner with. I don't think that's the case. That's not what I'm saying. Um, in fact, as George brought up in Sunday school this morning, he said, nobody has the Bible perfect from cover to cover. So if you want to you know, be specific and scrutinize it, we, we all hold to some false doctrine. 
I mean, you think about all of the different orthodox versions that there are in interpreting the end times. Well, somebody's got to be wrong somewhere. And yet still from the Bible, they're doing their best to faithfully interpret God's word. So nobody has perfect doctrine. So in that one sense, we all hold to some false doctrine. We have misunderstanding. We're wrong. But there are the fundamental doctrines, the first order doctrines on which our salvation depends. And then down a couple levels, there's those matters of charitable debate between believers. And there is a big difference between the two. So we're talking about first order doctrines here upon which our salvation depends. And false teachers, those kinds who twist the word of God in primary things, they abound. They're popular and they're rampant. But at the same time, we have to remember the false teacher is within us. The same thing that the false teachers were, you know, confidently promoting with an open Bible, our hearts do. Our flesh does that in the moment of temptation. Our flesh becomes the false teacher. Our flesh says, What's the big deal? Everybody does that. Why not once more? You you can get back to the straight and narrow easily. You've done it before. As though somehow we are masters of ourselves and not servants. Peter is clear that we are servants. And um, Paul is clear too. You, you know you're a servant, right? And you're not a lord. We're, we're creatures, not lords. We're not gods. We're always worshiping. We're always obeying. We're always under power, a foreign power, either gods or that of the evil one. So Paul said this. He said, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And he says you're always obeying. So you're either a slave, he says, of sin. This is Romans 6. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're a servant. You have a master. It's either sin, which is captivity leading to death, or you're a servant of righteousness, which is actually freedom leading to life. But we all we do have to recognize we have that false teacher within us. Now let's get let's get back to uh the text here, verse 20. He says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, that is, the defilements of the world, and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, for a few minutes, I want to park on this first because there's a couple of interpretive issues here. Number one is, who is Peter talking about here? Is he talking about the false teacher or is he talking about the follower of the false teacher? A good many interpreters think that Peter is talking about the false teacher. Notice in verse 20, look down at your Bible. At the beginning there, he says, they. And the last time he used the third person plural pronoun, they, he was talking about the false teacher. But, contextually, the last time Peter talked about escape, 
in verse 18, he was talking about the follower. And so I lean toward that Peter is talking here about the follower of the false teacher. Now, that's the easy part, I think, or the quick part. Um, Peter, this is difficult. Do you see the difficulty of this verse? Peter seems to imply that these people who are now entangled in worldly defilements and overcome by them were genuine Christians because they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, that brings up an issue because there is so much in the New Testament that says that can't happen. That is, a believer, a true, genuine believer, cannot be lost. But what Peter says seems to be implying that they can be because, look at, you know, he says that their, their last state is worse than their first state. Well, that clearly implies that they are condemned. I mean, you can't get around that. This, this person, these individuals are condemned. They are under wrath. So again, if these people truly knew Christ, Peter would be implying that true Christians can lose their salvation. So how do we make sense of this? I don't think that it's easy. I don't think that it's simple. But I think that the New Testament is pretty clear on this. Sometimes, and it's not terribly uncommon either, the New Testament uses Christian terms for unbelievers. Sometimes the New Testament uses Christian terms for unbelievers. And I'll show you this. I'll show you in just a moment. But it's clear that those who go back to sin, and we're not just talking about a struggle with sin. We're talking about embracing sin. And like a, a once-for-all embracing of sin and going from Christ. It's clear that they're not of the church. They're not of Christ and they're not of church, the church. The way that John put it is this. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And that's 1 John 2.19. So it's quite clear from that passage that those who don't persevere with Christ by faith till the end aren't of Christ. They aren't of His church either. But all true Christians, and the New Testament says this over and over again, all true Christians kept by the power of God will persevere to the end of the age. But again, as I said a moment ago, there are scriptures in the New Testament that use Christian terms for unbelievers. Why? Because for a time, it looks like they are believers. I want, I want you to turn to this so you can see this plainly. Go back in your Bible to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll start with verse 12. In John chapter 1, as the Apostle introduces us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, and 
was God who made all things, who is the light of the world. He said that He came to His own, but His own people didn't receive Him. But then in verse 12, what does it say? To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Such a wonderful passage. They all must receive Jesus. And how do you receive Him? You believe in His name. Now go over to chapter 2 and verse 23. Here is where we see one of the clearest examples of the New Testament using Christian descriptions for those who don't believe. That is, not truly. So it says in verse 23, chapter 2, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Great! A whole bunch more have converted, have have come to Christ, have put their faith in him. Looks good, doesn't it? But look at the very next verse. In fact, and, and notice John uses the exact words of chapter 1, verse 12. They believed in his name. But verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. I mean, that sounds very strange. These people believed in His name, but Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them. Meaning, He didn't draw near to them. He didn't confirm their faith. He didn't bring them with Him to walk with Him as a disciple. No, He didn't do that. Because He knew what was in them. So what is this faith? What is this believing in His name that they did? It was faith not of God, but of man. It was a response to the visible, a response to the emotional, but not a response to the effectual draw of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So it's not a genuine faith. And there are many places. Let me give you a very quick example. John chapter 15, you remember the vine and the branch analogy? And you would think that every branch that's in Jesus the vine belongs to Him truly, right? And will be kept forever. We have this um, language of in Jesus, in Christ, in Him all over the New Testament. But Jesus uses it in John 15 to include unbelievers. He says in John 15 verse 2, every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. So it looks like they're in. For a while, it really seems as though they are. But their faith is not one that lasts. And He says in John 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And if you want to continue to look at the New Testament using Christian descriptions For unbelievers, here's a few more examples. Parables in Matthew 13. The seed and the soils. You have the, the, the seed in the, the thorny ground and the rocky ground with a welcome reception of the Word of God with joy beginning to grow up, but not lasting. There's also the parable of the wheat and the weeds, also in the same chapter. There's Hebrews chapter 6. 
which is a very strong warning using many Christian descriptions for these people who aren't actually believers. And uh, that's all the ones that I have for you. But there's John 2, John 15, Matthew 13, Hebrews 6, and as we're seeing here today, 2 Peter chapter 2. So, no, I do not believe that these who are enticed away from Christ after escaping the world through knowing Jesus actually truly escaped or truly knew Christ. Now, Peter says at the end of this verse that their current state, their last state, is worse than the state that they were in before. And that brings up a question too. If these people were condemned in their sin before, how can this state in which they are condemned be worse than the one before? It's the same condemnation. But before, they were against Christ and Christ in that sense, against them. And they knew that they were rebels. Now they are against Christ, but they believe He is for them and them for Him. In other words, their sin now is cloaked in religion. And they believe that they have the Bible's endorsement. The slavery in which they're bound is a religious slavery. Their latter state is worse because they are slaves to corruption, but they're convinced they are actually servants of Christ. When someone is in that state, try to convince them that they need to be saved. It's horrible. And it's not a rare condition. Peter says in verse 21, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I want to be really clear on this and I I hope that you will feel the weight of how awful this is. And how awful it is because it's... These people, they're on the threshold. They were coming in. They, They wanted to know. And then the false teachers got a hold of them. They seduced them away from Christ. And they have come to think that they are actually serving Christ in their sin. In their pursuit of all the pleasures of this age. They think this is God's wonderful plan for their life. That's how horrible this is. So to, to sin at a distance from Jesus is one thing, but it's another thing to sin up close. And that's what's happening. To believe He's opposed to your sin and still sin is great sin. But to believe He is for your sin is even worse. To call the evil evil and do the evil is great evil. But to call the evil good and do the evil is even worse. To call the bitterness sweet. To call the darkness light. To call what the Bible curses blessed. This is great evil. To come out of evil into light and then to return to the evil is, to use the words of Hebrews 6, 
It's to crucify the Son of God again and hold Him up to contempt. It's a greater bondage and worse evil than before because to say that the sin is the will of God is to turn God on God. Look at verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I know, Listen, I know that these words are tough words. Peter is militant. He is heated. He is angry with that righteous anger. And as we go over this, we, I mean, I, I think, I don't want to say this. I don't want to talk like this. Listen. Yeah, Peter's hard. And there are places Paul is hard. And as was obvious earlier when I quoted Christ, there are places that Jesus is very hard. That doesn't mean that the heart doesn't break. Like what Paul said when he wrote about um, those who had been with Christ and then had become enemies of the cross, he said, I'm writing that right now with tears over those who have become enemies of the cross. That's what's happening here. And the heart must break, must grieve. Again, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. This is what the false teachers and their followers are doing. They left the the filth behind to follow Jesus. And now they're returning to the filth in Jesus' name. They left the evil And now they're coming back to it and embracing it as holy. Peter obviously hates what's happening. Do you? Does your heart break and do you hate what the false teachers are doing? I mean, until you do, until you're riled up, until you grieve, You're not going to work hard to help someone who is trapped in that darkness to come and see the light. We need to feel as the Word of God does about these things. You know, last week I I implored you and... Well, I I was telling you last week, you, you come and you hear the Word of God. And, or you know, you might be reading a Christian book, Christian living, Christian doctrine or whatever. And you think, okay, what's in this for me? How do I apply this to my life? And you have to think that way. But when you read God's Word and when you hear it or read a Christian book, you have to think, how can I use this to help somebody else? Not, man, who, who's got this problem? I know I don't. That's not what I'm talking about. But thinking, how can I use this to help someone? How can I be equipped for, for ministry to help people? You're not just here for you to grow yourself. You are here to help other people grow too. And our community desperately needs us to grow so that we can help others to grow. Because there's so many who are taken in by the prosperity gospel. We need mature men and mature women. And yes, it takes time. It's okay. It's okay that it takes time. Let it take years. 
I'm not saying don't work at it. But we need mature men and women grounded in the Word of God whose hearts are full of courage and compassion who will help others to see the light. Help those who have been enticed by false teachers. I have uh, come across many who were in churches that I knew from trustworthy reports had sketchy teaching, false doctrine, prosperity gospel, and so on. I know you don't want to offend someone who's there, right? Who's in that kind of church. You don't. So you have to be wise, tactful, and yet bold at the same time. I don't think that this particular question would offend someone. I mean, I wouldn't be offended if somebody asked me, so I don't think it would offend people. But I don't think someone would be offended if you asked them, does your church promise Christians prosperity in this age? Does your church promise Christians prosperity in this age? It's a a lead-in question to a conversation about what the Bible says concerning prosperity and suffering in the Christian life. And you could go on to show them from various passages of Scripture that the Bible does, in fact, not promise us prosperity, but it promises us suffering. Like Paul went out to the churches, it says in Acts 14, and he told them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Philippians chapter 1, it says, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And many other passages are equally plain. So let's spread the word. We need to be heartbroken for those who have been enticed away from Christ. Let's hear the word. Let's know the word. And in love, let's spread the word, the truth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the the plainness of Your Word. And I thank You, Lord, that You don't go soft and try to gloss things over. Your warnings are strong and Your warnings are clear. It's, It's Your love. You're calling out to the burning house that it's on fire. We must escape. Lord, that's not mean. We know it's Your love. And I pray that we would in love, wisdom and love, courage, boldness, clarity, tact, all of those things, Lord, help us to spread the truth. Help us to help people. We're not, I don't want to be one who has to win an argument. We're not in a cage match. Lord, I pray that You would give us the heart of compassion. Encourage both. Lord, I I pray that You would cause many, uh, use us to help the, the many who have been enticed by the false teaching to see the light and come to the truth and come out from that burning house and have true life. 
Lord, you have called us to suffer for your sake. We're not eager to that. Give us strength for it. Help us to love your name more than our own lives. Your steadfast love is better than life. So our lips praise you, and I pray that we would live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.